This is Fluid Truth, and I'm Johnny Marquat. We explore the simple question of whether there is equity in the justice system. Normally, Shirley does the intro, but we decided to switch things up on this episode. For those who don't know, I am the producer for Fluid Truth, and I've had the utmost pleasure working with Shirley these past few months. She has become more than a partner for this show, but also a good friend. This episode is a grand finale of the season where we pick our favorite quotes and stories from each episode going all the way back to the first episode in July till now and put them in a fluid truth montage. Thank you so much for an amazing season and all the support from our friends, family, and fans. Happy holidays. Till next time. But I got to give you a little backstory. Um, In 2010, I had been in Northern languishing in there. 23 hours a day, sometimes 24 hours a day, just languishing in the cell. When I, when I was able to come outside the cell, we was treated like like a dog, literally like a dog, because they had three cages outside in the rec yard that you would come outside and you would just walk around in the yard, all the way around, back and forth, with chains on. So they would take off your handcuffs, but they would leave the shackles on. So if you could imagine walking around the chains dragging on the floor and you constantly hearing that that sound of the chains, it, it, it's reminiscent to, to slave times and you actually feel like a slave. My thought processes, I think we can't help as human beings but be affected by our pasts. It's how we choose to be affected is is my, my stance on it, right? Um, and so... I also want to just name like, thank goodness is not just me. Thank goodness there's like, uh, there's people above me and people next to me who are like in concert having this conversation because where I do think we have issues, not just in Boston public schools, but in school districts, right? Is when it's like a, a top down decision and there isn't conversation and there isn't buy-in. And I think that's when things kind of just get real muddy. Um, and I, I feel blessed that we have, again, a superintendent and a COO who are working hand in hand with the community and with the chief of uh, school police and with the mayor to kind of just ensure that we are thinking through the right things and, and engaging with students, engaging with community partners, engaging with the safety services officers themselves, engaging in data, right? And, and making sure that we are grounded in observation versus subjectivity. In hindsight, I can't say that I was intentionally or knowingly cognizant or appreciative of surviving that situation, honestly. I mean, to me, it was, look, I guess at that time, for a period of time, I looked at it like a rap video, honestly, like, you know, Popo pulled up on me, or Jake pulled up on me, Five O pulled up on me, da da da, and I got through it. Whatever, not really understanding the magnitude or the gravity of the situation at the time. But with experience and age, and doing what I do now, and understanding, you know, the criminal justice system to some degree, and the you know the school to prison pipeline, and seeing individuals that I work with on the carousel constantly, I was like you know, that easily could have been me or any one of my siblings. Or even, like, even in my household, I'm the youngest, and, you know, I've had a sibling or two that's done time for various things. And, like, we grew up in the same household. We just made different decisions. 
and it you know that speaks to me that even though I wasn't in the streets and living the street life like that, I still could have ended up in that same kind of lane as a sibling of mine that made different decisions. So that is the the best way for me to heal. Wherever I am going, I consider that I am a dignified person who cannot be degraded by another person. So from my Nimbin, my first name Nimbin, to my last name Watara, there's power. That feeling of power in these two names uh, cannot allow me to be traumatized by an embarrassment, actually, by the U.S. government, because the same U.S. institutions, you know, that uh, brought me to prison are actually the same institutions that were totally embarrassed and apologized profusely to me. And the judge also apologized profusely to me. And I completed my Fulbright uh, scholarship, my, my studies at Georgia like gracefully, you know, finished with a PhD, you know. So um, I cannot trade my power for trauma. I'm changing his life. I didn't set out to go to work that day. Go, I'm going to change his life. No, I just did what I trained to do and what I was planning training to do, you know. So, you know, being a cop and working EMT on the side part-time, that was just what I wanted to do. But one of the more impactful things was the fact that my client testified. He didn't swear in. He didn't take an oath to tell the truth. I could not have instructed him to do what he did. But the overflow of sincerity and truth came from his reaction. And it impacted those who were watching. And it impacted them enough. In my cross-examination of that cop probably didn't do a thing. It was his reaction that impacted them enough. And then my closing argument that gave them a sense of, can we really trust what this guy said he saw, given the experience we just had in this courtroom? And so that's my story. My story is that in the courtroom, what you experience is impactful. But I think, first of all, it's doable, right? People, some people have it in their heads that change cannot happen. And I understand they got 300 years of receipts on why change can't happen. But people also forget that stuff can happen. Mindsets can change. Movements can happen. People can be encouraged. So I, my overall message is that believe that change can happen. Because once you put it in your mind, then things start happening. Politics isn't just... I vote from elected official and that's it, right? You got to worry about DTCs, RTCs. And for people that don't know, that's the Democrat Town Committee, Republican Town Committee. You have to worry about councilmen, aldermen. Like there's so much that goes into it that it gets frustrating because you're just like, wow, this is such a deep system that I have to change. So I understand why people get frustrated, but if we don't do something, the system still stays the same.
community itself is not taking any action or accountability in creating the safety that they want to see. We all just kind of rely on this big system like, oh, well, I don't have to, I don't have to handle that. I'm going to just call the cops type of vibe, um, I think is a crisis in community. I think as a community, like, yeah, if you, if you feel you need the reinforcement and you feel like you're in a dangerous situation, we should have people we can call to back us up. But at the same time, I think actively being involved in like the solution to the problem is really important. I wanted to hire a lawyer to actually sue the state of Connecticut, which I was deterred from being that the repercussions behind what if I did win, what would happen to me? So I decided to take my newfound freedom and run, which I did. It's been, I don't know, 11 years now. I haven't been incarcerated for 11 years. And within that time, I ended up getting my bachelor's, my master's, uh, pardoned along the way. It wasn't easy. It was not easy. It's so much deeper than being defiant. It's so much deeper than being disobedient. It's so much deeper than taking it personal. There's a lot of issues within our children that people don't understand. When you first take a child out of any type of home setting, regardless of we feel it's unhealthy or healthy, that's their healthy. That's their norm. And so teaching um, those that are involved, like the police officers, us as social workers, um, oh, he just bad or she just bad. No, I'm acting up enough because maybe you'll take me back home. So really understanding the system. And that's what I desire. And that's what my voice is to really talk about and really help others understand that. Because I have two children too that suffered from a single parent home and uh, my daughter had behavior issues, uh, very angry. My son has special needs. I didn't have nobody to help me advocate. I fought for them on my own. I educate myself the best I could. Um, I didn't have the knowledge when I could go into the school system and say, and fight for my daughter. I just, she got suspended. That's what they said. Um, even though I knew that I probably could fight for them, but I didn't understand it. Um, being a single mom, trying to work, trying to uh, hold the household down, trying to be a disciplinary, trying to be nurturing, trying to be, the breadwinner, trying to make sure they have food on their, their table, trying to be the teacher when they had homework, trying to be um, all those things that I need to be in, as a one person. I get it. For us, the big injustice is when we're dealing with, in the state of Connecticut, Husky patients or people that are on the state's healthcare system. And I'm glad that we have a safety net for people. But many years ago, the governor of Connecticut uh, had decided that those chiropractors were making too much money off of it, um, and we were getting paid a whopping $9 a visit. And so clearly that wasn't very much, and we are not really the big drain. I think last time I checked, chiropractors represent one half of 1% of the total healthcare dollar in this country. So we're really an insignificant speck of nothing. Um, but healthcare, like a lot of aspects uh, in this country, lobbying groups do make a big difference. And I don't think we have a lot of money behind us. Anyway, so so we had lost everything having to do with state reimbursements um, um, for people that are in the, those programs. And again, I'll, I'll make my office as affordable for people as they want, if they want my care. But a lot of times people have to make economic decisions. And so to see me, they have to pay something out of pocket. I think it's a multi-dimensional uh, 
feeling for me because it's a sad feeling that we're still going through this. And then it was also uh, some excitement because it felt a little bit different from all most of the marches we've saw before. It felt a little bit different. And I'm, I think a lot changed. I remember when I first came to America, I saw the Rodney King thing and that was caught on videotape and that, you know, you know, California, I saw California burning and stuff like that. So he's more heightened. So a lot of these incidents that happened in between those times that didn't get caught on videotape, people didn't really believe it because I've told people some of the stuff that happened to me and they're like, really? And they, they just took it like, oh yeah, that doesn't really happen just because you're black, you know, that doesn't really, but you know, because of the video and, and the dash cam and everything now, it's become a little bit harder to hide a lot of this stuff and it become a little, you know, people are more aware. And when I say people, I mean outside the black community are more aware that, oh yeah, this really does happen. Race riots. And once again, we had you know pivot and stay focused because the racism isn't the goal. Um, our equality is the goal. Our, our education is the goal. Our mission is the goal. And that's what you cannot stay focused on the negative. You have to you have to really still find it within yourself to fight above and not go low, as you know, Michelle Obama has you know, eloquently told us to do. But it's not even so much about always going high, but just staying focused and keep moving forward. Um, plenty of examples of, you know, certainly equality of women, um, you know, in the church, you know, making sure that we're always fighting for the equal charge of churches, the equal pay of churches. So justice has so many layers and it has so many um, ways that we can address it. But, but yeah, I think we're always in a constant struggle, but the, the idea is to always make sure that you don't lose focus on the mission. Um, even though, you know, I am a big advocate for a safe space, especially for um, black and brown uh, children, teens, young adults. Um, I think if we want this big, progressive, happy world that we want, there has to be, we have to maybe create a blueprint for what it means to be a genuine ally, a genuine human being. Okay, you're an outsider and you're coming into someone's safe space. What do you do? So I think my hope is that it will all become more genuine in the coming days. I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah. So from the big picture, when you first asked that question, the first thing that came to mind was reparations. <laughs> that's to be the truth, or that's my honest truth. Um, but I guess on the smaller scale, and I, I actually believe that. I'm not just um, making a joke. I think that should happen to make that real change. Um, but on the smaller scale, I do want I want more actions. I, want, mm -hmm. I, I'm, I love to talk. It's cool to talk about change. It's cool to discuss and try to have different pockets of our society give their information to educate but I think we know a lot and we know enough to make change and to actually have laws be enacted and have things fundamentally change so that's sort of what I would hope for. And what I noticed is that most black and brown people didn't have a seat at the table because there were background checks that interfered with them even being able to qualify to be considered Right. And then even with that, your resume is not even reviewed. So your, your resume is not even going into in front of anyone. 
before your background check is reviewed. And so I, I just, I thought it was the most um, asinine process ever. And so I, I said to myself, okay, I'm, I know I'm new here. So what do we do? How do we, how do we change this? You know, what, what's the, what's the first step to advocating for people who look like me um, to have an opportunity outside of this background check process? Well, it was a bigger fight. It was a bigger conversation. Police officers, not justice. Um, all police officers have the ability to do legally is to stop you. Um, and that's what arrest means. And we bring you to uh, present you to the judge, the jury, the courts, the attorneys, and things of that nature. So that's that's the function of police. We're law enforcement, but in my belief, we're not criminal justice. Um, because the, the police objective is not to find justice, it's to make an arrest or to keep peace. Um, sometimes we're, uh, sometimes we are uh, counselors, marriage counselors, you know, sometimes we're just big brothers. But I don't believe that we're, police are part of the criminal justice. You don't want to admit that you empathize with somebody who could commit a crime like that, but you do. And I think that's really part of the criminal justice work is seeing that this isn't some crazy loose person that, you know, is a bad person because they did a bad thing. No, good people can do bad things. And I almost don't even believe that there are bad people in a way without there being cause. I really believe in the ideology that hurt people hurt people. And I really got to see that firsthand within Inside Out. I like that. Jump in, Johnny. So kind of going back to the media and kind of what you said about the prisoners, I think the big problem with media and like the news is that they thrive off white lies in a way that they don't tell the full story and then amplify the part of the story they want to say. So like you just said, there could be a person that shot someone, but it was to protect themselves and with the, because of the money they had. But I bet the news story would be like, black man shot other man and then just don't give a, the reason why. Obviously, they, they wouldn't give the reason why. They have to make sure they amplify the color of their skin to create more views, and they never give the other person's side of the story on why. You know, people need tools. Uh, people need resources. There are people who have good hearts, good intentions. I believe that most folks are good people, and most folks want to see the common good happen. Uh, but may not necessarily know how to get there. And I think it's important in this moment uh, that we give folks as many tools as possible uh, to try to implement um, so that they could see success in their organizations, in their lives. Um, and uh, I, I would like to start uh, with uh, training municipalities uh, and um, entering into the academic guild because I think that, um, you know, uh, academia, usually uh, help to um, cultivate thought leaders and people who are um, ideologically supposed to be progressive in their thinking and maybe a little bit more open uh, to uh, uh, experiencing radical change that therefore we might be able to see infiltrated uh, within other spheres uh, and organizations in our society. 
So I thought when we, and and again, I always call Connecticut the beautiful state of Connecticut because we're ahead of the game. When we recognize this, and I happen to live in one of the towns that said this is a public health care crisis, we we were right on target because it's been one. And and then you see why we have these inequities in our health care. And then the pandemic just exploited it and and ripped the Band-Aid off and said, look, these are the issues. And when you get down to, uh, as I said, I went to Spelman College. So, you know, we spent a extensive amount of time learning the history of America and, you know, how we got here and why people have a distrust for vaccination and all the work we now need to do to get over that distrust and rebuild trust in communities where, you know, a woman would go to a doctor and you go in for a surgery and you come out with no ovaries. You know, that was a reality for minorities or, uh, you know, yeah, let me sign up for this experimental treatment. And then now I got syphilis and you won't treat it. You know, I mean, these are realities. And so we have to rebuild that trust. Um, and we're, I think we're doing that work now. But it, it's a, it takes a long time to overcome. Oh, absolutely. It takes it takes a level of grit. It takes a level of boldness. It takes a level of transparency to be an accomplice. You're You're right there with me. We're in lockstep to fight this fight. Even more so, you're ahead of me. And you're, and, you're, and you're always looking back to make sure I'm good, right? That's what an accomplice is. And an and ally oftentimes can, can turn into a bystander very easily. And that's what we don't need anymore, right? Last year was the, un, like, it was, a, it, was a, it was a wake-up call. It was America reckoning with its own history, right? And we, we were all, we all had to be silent to listen. Some, not all. I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna make the assumption that everyone was glued to the TV, watching the, the complete loop of a man being killed on, you know, on television. And I also wanna be very clear that this is not just akin to black men, this is akin to black women who often suffer on both ends, where your gender and your race play a significant role. The women are the ones who are often left to take care of the familial household when the man is incarcerated, when he is killed. They bear that financial burden. They're the, and oftentimes they're the parent that stays. They're the, they're the ones left. So they, they, play, they play that dual role, right? And so even in certain spaces, we have to also have lift them up in conversation and ensure that we highlight their struggles as well. Uh, so it, one day I was walking down 125th Street when I moved to New York City, and I saw this billboard across the street from Apollo, and it must have been at least 20 pictures where black males were being burned alive and lynched. And I was appalled. And I want to understand how could another human being take out their anger and frustration on another human being to the point where they try to eliminate them or dehumanize them? And then I want to understand why was we doing that to ourselves as a people? And I started to study internalized racism, institutional racism, but my main focus was on internalized racism, self-hate, disrespect, and um, being able to put all that together and be able to highlight that and and have a sense of empathy and compassion for individuals that even individuals that either, you know, that took their anger on me and individuals that are also perpetuating that same internalized racism. Wow, what a season. To catch the flavor of the season, there was a little bit of everyone. And in catching these snippets of all this content, all I can say is thanks. Thank you so much for an amazing season. Thank you to our guests for sharing their stories, perspectives, and of course their truths. 
Thank you for listening and also being a part. And I encourage you, go back, listen to these episodes, catch more than just a little bit of the flavor. So we're taking a short break for the season, but we'll be back soon with more Fluid Truth. Special thanks to our producer, Johnny Marquat, and executive producer, Dave DeRoche. Shout out and big thanks to the Fluid Truth crew for their assistance. That's Jackie Callanan, Raynette Shafu, and Jake McCarthy. Music is provided by Audio Hero from their Jazz Lounge album. To learn more about all of our podcasts, visit qu.edu slash podcasts. You can listen to our podcast on the platform or app of your choice. Be sure to check us out on Twitter or Instagram at QPodcasts. If you have a story to share or something you want to talk about, find us on social media or shoot us an email. The address is QUPodcast at QU.edu. All right. That's it for the season. That's it for today. See you soon. Till next time.